I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 as we continue in our series, in, which is found in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 20, and this is what the Lord says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Pray again. God, as we sit, all of us, under the authority of your Word, we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would lead us, guide us. Pray, Father, that you would bless this time as we uh, hear uh, from your Word. I pray, Father, that you would bless uh, me as I speak, bless your people as they hear, and encourage all of us together uh, to believe your Word, to lay it up in our hearts, to practice it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at the heart of uh, this commandment is loyalty. Loyalty to uh, the covenant we enter into before God in our marriages. Uh, this general loyalty, when it is kept, presents to the whole community of God's people a picture of God's own loyalty to his people in covenant relationship, and it provides the whole community a general picture of love and care and mutual submission that makes for healthy relationships with others and in the society. Out of reverence for Christ, uh, Paul then goes on to describe marriage in a way that both images that submission for the whole community while also imaging the love that Christ has for us as his people. What I'm saying is this, that when this commandment is honored in marriage, it is to the benefit not only of husband and wife, but of the whole community of God's people and, in point of fact, the society at large. Um, in the marriage relationship, this loyalty is demonstrated specifically and in part through maintaining our fidelity to our spouse. And I say in part because there are lots of other responsibilities we have toward our spouses in covenant relationship with them. Implied in this command, however, are also broad implications, not just for married couples, but for those outside of marriage as well, for single people. Implied in this command are things that will be spelled out more specifically in God's law about what is and what is not appropriate as it involves uh, sex and sexuality in the covenant community. Douglas Stewart says this in his commentary on this passage. He says, this commandment does not explicitly condemn premarital sex or postmarital sex as by a widow or widower, cohabitation without formal marriage, uh, bestiality or incest, all of which are dealt with elsewhere in various ways. But by implication, it certainly does condemn all of these practices. And at the heart of the call, away from these practices, just as, it, uh, just as in this seventh commandment, uh, the, the heart of the call is loyalty, loyalty to God and loyalty to each other. Yet all of us know the temptation, and, and we all know the danger that the seventh commandment implies, just as in idolatry, where we replace the love we owe to God for love of false gods, so we, in our marriages and in our, uh, in our relationships, we're tempted to replace the love we owe to our spouses for other loves. And as single people, we're, we're tempted to replace the loyalty we owe to others, the loyalty we owe 
to others, we are tempted to replace it with disloyalty. Indeed, there are segments of our culture where this disloyalty is not only practiced but praised as a healthy way of maintaining a marriage or as a healthy way of engaging someone you love. T. Desmond Alexander says this in his commentary. He says, when a society turns a blind eye to marital faithfulness, it signals that absolute faithfulness in all relationships does not matter. If an individual cannot be true to his or her marriage partner, the one with whom he or she is most intimate, what expectation can others have that a person will remain faithful to them? Without faithfulness, all relationships become considerably less than what God intended them to be when made a lack of trust in other people. But where then does the power to keep this commandment come from? It comes from what Israel as a people were already experiencing, what God was already showing them in His relationship with them. It comes from the steadfast love of God that is shown to every single one of us who has our faith in the Lord Jesus. He is faithful to us in every way. Amen, people of God. And so faithfulness in our marriages and all of our relationships with each other is rooted in the faithfulness of God who, despite our unfaithfulness, remains faithful. He is so faithful in His love that for a people who did not love Him, He sent Christ, of whom Paul, in commanding husbands to love their wives, says this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the faithfulness of God to his church. When we were unfaithful, he was faithful. When we didn't love, he loved. And he still does. Amen, people of God. This is his loyalty. This is his sacrificial love demonstrated through the work of his son on our behalf in the church. So how do we keep this command? How do we keep this seventh commandment? How, would we, how do we keep this command? Well, I want to encourage us that, first of all, we keep this command by embracing the obligations of love, by embracing the obligations of love. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says something very powerful and instructive for us in keeping this commandment. He writes, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul, of course, doesn't 
quote all the commandments here, but gives a summary list which includes the commandment against adultery. Since Paul's focus is on the horizontal relationship between the Lord's people, the the second half of of the Decalogue is in view. And, And like in all the other commandments that have to do with our relationships with one another, failure to keep the seventh commandment is at its heart a failure to love. At its heart, it is a failure to love the other person, to show love to the other person. When we commit adultery or any other sexual sin, whether inside or outside marriage, we fail to show each other that which our Lord, through the Apostle Paul, says is the fulfillment of the law, that which holds all of our relationships together. We fail to show love. And that is why keeping this commandment starts with a commitment through the power of the Spirit to walk in the duties of love toward our brothers and sisters and how we behave sexually both inside and outside of marriage. It is to do what the Heidelberg Catechism says that we read this morning. It is to declare as wrong what is sexually immoral in us and around us in this regard. It is to hate those sins that wrong our neighbors sexually. It is to strive to live godly lives in this area and to encourage our brothers and sisters to do the same. It is to resist the temptation to ignore, to minimize, or otherwise diminish the impact of adultery or of our inappropriate sexual speech and actions. It is to repent to those whom we have hurt and to those we, who have been impacted by adultery or by inappropriate speech and actions. It is to take responsibility when we have wronged others and seek to repair damage that we have done. It is to come alongside those who have been damaged, to comfort them, to support them, to encourage them. And it is to come alongside the repentant, to forgive them, to restore them, and to encourage them toward renewed obedience to Christ and His commands. We ought to pursue these and other duties to love that God calls us to in this arena of our life. While much of our cinema and our music focuses on the romantic aspects of love, even in marriage, The central duties of love are not purely romantic, but have to do with care, and they have to do with doing good, and they have to do with protecting, and they have to do with defending, and they have to do with cherishing, and they have to do with delighting in the other person. Love does no wrong. Rather, as Paul tells us in another place, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Where these characteristics prevail, adultery and everything that has to do with sexual immorality will have no soil to grow. If we are manifesting that kind of love toward each other in our marriages, if we're manifesting that kind of love in our relationships with one another, then there is no place for the wrong to grow. Amen, people of God. I know I'm telling the truth, by the way. Y'all must just be listening. The call here is to work as a community to support, to encourage married couples and singles in the obligations of love. At their heart, adultery and other forms of sexual immorality are rooted in self-interest and self-seeking. In committing these sins, we are seeking our own pleasure and not the good of others. 
One place where we as Christians need to do a great deal of encouraging married couples and singles is in the arena of guarding our eyes from lust. The prevalence of illicit sexual content which is easily accessible on our phones and on our computers and our televisions is deeply corrupting the way men and women view each other and the way we interact with each other. The objectifying of one another the diminishing of the gift of sexual intimacy meant for marriage, the inappropriate gazing which turns into inappropriate speech, all of which comes out of a heart, comes out of the heart, are encouraged by what we take in with our eyes. I want to encourage you that if you are a married person or a single person and you are struggling with watching an illicit sexual content, to sit down with somebody who can walk with you to encourage you away from that and hold you accountable. I want to encourage all of us, married and single alike, when, that when we don't guard our eyes, we end up with a skewed view of, uh, of each other and a diminished love for others. So at least part of our call here is to walk with one another relationally to help guard each other from this sin. Amen, people of God. So we keep this command by encouraging encouraging the obligations of love, we keep this commandment by discouraging the sins of disloyalty. Discouraging the sins of disloyalty. Listen, I am not here uh, to beat up on God's church. Despite what some may believe, my protest about injustices in the church is born out out of a desire to help the church where God has set me to be, to help the church be a city on the hill to be a visible witness that Jesus Christ is the Messiah through encouraging us to love one another. But the revelations of sexual sin and abuse that have been recently coming to light in branches of the Christian church, the Christian community, is harmful to that witness. It is why we must be committed to discouraging speech and behavior and customs and practices that allow sexual immorality to prevail among us. And we must do so without picking and choosing the sins we don't like the most or that don't fit our social political worldview. At the heart of this command, as well as God's other commands in the scriptures regarding how we behave sexually, refraining from adultery and every sin that tends toward it was and is about presenting to the nations around us an alternative humanity, presenting to the nations around us a different way of being human beings in our relationship with each other. When people look at the church, they are supposed to see in us and among us a different way of being human beings than they are used to in their relationships with each other. This is why in, uh, uh, in the case of adultery in the Corinthian church, of which some were boasting, and, and the person uh, guilty appeared unrepentant, Paul declared, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul goes on to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world for, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. This is the Word of God, by the way. Paul goes on to say, purge the evil person from among you. And the point is that the church is the new humanity called to model that for the world around us. Just like Israel was supposed to model that for the nations around them, you and I, Jesus says, are, are a city set on a hill, that, 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 that we are a lamp that is meant to shine to all of those around us. And so how we treat each other, even in this regard, will either shine lights or show forth darkness. Can I just say to you this morning that inappropriate sexual speech, by the way, is not locker room talk. It's sin. What I love here is that Paul says, in essence, instead of focusing on folk outside the church, we need to pay attention to what? To the inside. God isn't calling those outside the church to be the new humanity. He is calling those inside of it to be the new humanity. He is calling those on the inside to be that. This is expressly why he spoke these words to Israel. In fact, in Leviticus 18, where God expands on what is inappropriate, uh, expands on what is appropriate and not appropriate, he says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statues. You shall follow my rules and keep my statues and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statues and my rules if a person, by, uh, that if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The point again is, I I want you to be different, Israel. I don't want you to be like the land you came from, and I don't want you to be like the nations around you. I want you to show them by the way you act and by the way you treat one another that you are a different kind of people, that you are my people. I I want you to show them and display to them what it means to live in love and loyalty and what it means to walk away from the lusts and passions of our own hearts, to be faithful to God and to be faithful to each other. This is our call to be the new humanity, and we do this in the arena of sex by discouraging speech and behavior that tends toward wrong toward our neighbor. And so I want to say here that the call here is to take sin seriously to take it seriously to the point that we are ready, if we must, to discipline those who refuse to repent, to walk in faithfulness to the Lord in this area of life. And I know that discipline sounds harsh to some of us who may not have grown up in traditions that stressed it or who grew up in traditions where where, where it was overbearing and unloving discipline. But when I speak of discipline, I speak of it in the biblical sense, which has its roots in the reclamation of the one who is walking in patterns of speech and behavior that are not in keeping with the love we are called to. I mean brotherly and sisterly love. 
that seeks to come alongside a brother or sister who is straying. I'm talking about the Galatians 6 kind of discipline where Paul instructs, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are, who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I mean that kind of discipline where those of us who are calling a straying brother or sister toward righteousness in this area of their life do not behave as if we do not have sin ourselves. Where we come alongside of people and encourage them away from what would be toward their own destruction and toward the destruction of others. Amen, people of God. So we take it seriously, seeking the appropriate discipline where sin has been committed, and yet we engage it with gentleness, the gentleness of Christ calling the offender to repentance and repair for whatever harm has been done. Amen, people of God. We keep this commandment by, 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 by keeping the obligations of love, by discouraging the sins of disloyalty, and we keep this commandment by upholding the equality of the command. Okay, you'll see what I mean in a second. I want to say here, and it's something that I actually said when I preached on honoring your mother and your father. That, uh, and what I said uh, there is that, that that commandment, honor your mother and father, that I said it was an inclusive commandment spoken to both men and women in the covenant community. And I'm saying to you this morning that this commandment is an inclusive commandment that is spoken to both men and women. In fact, uh, when Jesus answers a question about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, he's actually speaking to a group of men, religious leaders, uh, in fact, some of whom have been a part of of a school of thinking that would have allowed divorce for any and all reasons. And Jesus, likely speaking directly to that impulse, he says this in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. My point, by the way, isn't isn't to get into the allowable reasons for divorce. That's not the sermon this morning. It's rather to show that God held men equally accountable to avoid adultery and actions that would tend toward it and to avoid putting others in a position as well where they would be encouraged toward the same. He was, of course, also uncovering the widespread injustices done to women whose husbands left them for trivial reasons to marry somebody else. Y'all didn't know that kind of stuff happened in the Bible, did you? It does. It's a call away from what I described in the previous point of ignoring, minimizing, diminishing the impact of the sin, uh, of this particular sin uh, out of this idea uh, that we sometimes have uh, in the church and how we distinguish men and women, the equality of this command discourages us from, 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 from the boys will be boys attitude. That often allows us to tolerate sins among our brothers in this regard that we would despise in our sisters. It's a call away from what I, what I described in the previous point of ignoring, minimizing, diminishing the impact of this sin out of the same boys will be boys attitude. It's a reminder that we follow the Jesus who in John 
protecting the woman caught in the very act of adultery, says to those ready to stone her, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's a reminder of that same Jesus, though, saying to the woman, go and from now on sin no more. The call to keep this commandment, all I'm saying, is an equal call. It's a call that recognizes the tendency of men and women to violate it and of the need for both men and women through the power of the Spirit to be encouraged to keep it. By the way, I know that story in John is not in the early manuscripts. Don't come to me afterwards and say it's not in the early manuscripts. We don't know if it's in there. It's the kind of thing that I believe would have happened. (laughs) Some of y'all don't know why I said that, but sometimes people like to come to me and correct me after sermons. I just want to say that now. I'm stressing this, brothers and sisters, however, because great harm has been done um, to women in some places in the church that treat sexual sin differently, downplaying the sins of men against women in this regard. And I'm saying it because in other places and on other occasions, great harm has been done to men downplaying what happens to them out of belief that they are not harmed as deeply as women when they are sinned against in this regard. Yet God calls us to keep this commandment by calling all of us men and women alike to care about each other, to love each other to the point where we don't wrong each other in this regard. Amen, people of God. And so the call here is to deal with the biases that are in our own hearts. The Pharisees were so blinded in their question to Jesus that they couldn't even see the harm, the widespread injustice that was being done to women by men who were leaving their wives for any and every reason to marry someone else. In the same way, make other people the object of our lusts, breaking the seventh commandment in Exodus 20. But God was incredibly sensitive to the harm done to marriages and to single people when the seventh commandment was broken. And God had a special concern for those who were the chief victims of this kind of sin, namely women and children. So God was going to take great pains in his law to ensure that there was no bias in his family that would cause us to mistreat anyone in this, guard, male, in, in, in this regard, male or female, adult or child. And this commandment to not commit adultery was the first statement to his covenant community in this regard. And it was a commandment spoken equally to men and to women. And so it should be spoken and upheld equally for men and women. And it shouldn't be spoken and upheld, it, it should be spoken and upheld with this reminder from the Apostle Paul, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. So glorify God. Watch this. In your body. Not just with your words, not just with your gifts, 
Glorify God with your body, with what you do with it, with how you use it. Glorify the Lord. And I finished with that. I, I, I finished with, with that closing statement from, 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 from 1 Corinthians 6.20 to remind us that keeping this command is gospel fruit. Keeping this command is gospel fruit, that, that we were bought with a price and, and ought to give our body to the glory of, of Christ is a reminder that Christ died giving up his body for us on the tree. He, he paid the price of his own body in death that we might be freed into eternal life. The, the, the right response, the faith response, the glorifying response is for us to be willing to give our bodies for the purposes He has called us to. And this is why we flee sexual immorality, not simply as an act of morality, but as an act of gratitude to the one who gave Himself up for us. And so may Christ through His Spirit fill us with that gratitude. And may we live in love to Him, love to our spouses, and love to our neighbors. Amen, people of God. Let's pray. Father, we give glory to Your name. We thank you for this commandment that you have placed in the Scriptures. We thank you for teaching us through your Word how to walk in faithfulness to one another and how we carry ourselves and our speech and our thoughts and our actions, how we use our body in relationship to others sexually, Lord. We want to be committed to what you call us to, and so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help in this world, Lord, that we may indeed be a city set on the hill, light to the world around us, that they might see that there is a different way of being human beings in terms of how we relate to one another. We pray this in Jesus' mighty, powerful, matchless name.